What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined by Ben Badler. We are recording this Thursday evening, September 14th. A ton is happening in the baseball world. A ton always seems to be happening in the baseball world. But how are you doing, Ben? This is episode 60, another round number for us. Yeah, a lot of things going on in front offices in baseball land right now, huh? Yeah, it really seems like a ton is happening. I remember after we finished last week's podcast, it felt like the Nationals with all of their weird ownerships, shenanigans, uh, laying off a bunch of scouts, the Steven Strasburg retirement ceremony debacle, and then Mike Rizzo getting a, a contract extension just the other day. That one was kind of crazy, and I wanted to talk through that, but since then, we've had news with both the Mets and the Red Sox with, with people running or not running those teams. So today the news came out that the Red Sox fired Heim Bloom, just his fourth year into running the ship with Boston. And then we also had news recently that David Stearns would be taking over uh, the Mets. Maybe that one was a little less surprising than Heim Bloom, but a lot of front office talk today. And uh, I'm sure some of these might be more or less interesting for you, but I figured we would start with with Heim Bloom and the Red Sox, since that's the most recent, as we record this podcast, maybe the most newsworthy, although maybe you have different opinions on that. It's it's certainly getting a lot of attention online right now as we record this podcast, and I was pretty surprised by it. Maybe maybe I shouldn't have been. It seemed like there was at least some buzz that, that he was on the hot seat, but what are your thoughts on Heim Bloom getting, the, uh, or getting fired in, in Boston? I wasn't surprised that the Red Sox fired him. I mean, just look at the the last four years in Boston, right? He was hired before the 2020 season. So in four years, you have one playoff appearance, the other three seasons, two of them were last place finishes in the AL East. Uh, And then this season is going to be their fourth or fifth place again for the third out of four seasons. Um, You know, I guess you could say one of those was the 2020 season, but I don't think any Red Sox fan wishes that the 2020 season had lasted any longer than it did. Um, obviously I think the most memorable part of his time in Boston will be the Mookie Betts trade. I I don't think there's really any question though, that that was ownership that (laughs) was saying you need to trade Mookie Mm. Betts. So that's, that's more on the people who own the team than it is on bloom. Uh, you can certainly question the return. Alex Verdugo has been, you know, steady two, three win player since the trade. Connor Wong is actually I've been a, say, a surprisingly useful catcher this year as a mm. uh, 27-year-old. And, and obviously Jeter Downs has been a bust. But, uh, you know, look, Mookie Betts is going to Cooperstown. He's had <laughs> four years of Hall of Fame-type performance since they traded in the Dodgers, led yeah. the NL in war twice. Well, well I kind of wanted to talk through that trade. And, and my first impressions were just that it feels like odd timing. I understand that the Red Sox really haven't been great since Heim Bloom has taken over, but it seems like when he was hired, the organization really wanted to sort of step back, become a little bit more sustainable, spend less money. Obviously, that was part of the reason that they traded Mookie Betts is clearly they, they either felt they were unable or unwilling to sign him uh, when he became a free agent. And, I mean, if you look at our org talent rankings, at least since 2019 to now, they've gone from the worst farm system in baseball to on our most recent midseason uh, list, they're at five. So one of the best farm systems in baseball. I feel like it's just a bit odd that he's kind of revamped the farm system and now you maybe 
are getting towards that that point where you see whether or not this next wave of Boston talent is going to be competitive. Uh, although maybe just my my bar for what a a general manager needs to be doing at the big league level, and especially in a market like Boston, is just a little bit too low. But I thought it was just kind of odd timing. I feel like he's done exactly what what he was hired to do in the sense of revamping the farm system. But obviously, running a team isn't just the farm system, so. Not sure about that. And then with the, the Mookie Betts trade, how would you evaluate that trade for the Red Sox right now? Because I feel like people, I feel like everyone is talking about the Mookie Betts trade as if the Red Sox traded the last four years of what he's done when that wasn't really the case. And I feel like the trade is fine. It, it's almost like I feel like, I feel like you are, people are very, you can very easily overrate what one year of Mookie Betts is worth. Um, you weren't trading the last four years of Mookie Betts. You didn't have the control of him for that time. The Dodgers extended him before he got to the free agent market um, in 2020, I believe. I think it was like middle of the season when they announced that extension. Um, but but what are your thoughts? Do you think it's a even trade? Do you think it's a win? Do you think it's a loss? I, I don't think anyone would argue it's a win, but I think it's better than... For the Dodgers, yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, for they, the Dodgers, but, but the, the Dodgers didn't trade those three pro, those three players for the current contract that Mookie Betts is on. They traded they traded those three players for one season of Mookie Betts, and they also had to take on David Price and half of his contract, which was forty eight million dollars at the time of the trade. He had three years left, ninety six million to cover. He pitched in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty two, eleven starts, one hundred fourteen innings, solid in that time. Um, but just, I mean, around one F war, if you're looking at that. And then in the shortened 2020 season, you got basically three F war out of bets. So I don't think you can just lump in everything that bets has done with the Dodgers, um, as part of that trade. So I think it's, I think it's more close to even than the public perception seems to be of that trade, at least. Well, I think what they should have done is just kept him and extended him and just, well, obviously, (laughs) yeah, if, if uh, this we're is not, just talking about what Heim Bloom is doing when when ownership is clearly saying, okay, trade him. We're not going to like obviously you'd love to keep him and extend him, but that didn't seem to be a realistic option based on everything I've been reading about how that was handled at the time from national writers and in Boston beat writers. Like obviously oh, I don't 100%. have an insight. I, I don't I'm not criticizing Heim Bloom for saying for Yeah, but his, I just mean his, if you're his quote decision to trade That's Mookie what I mean. Bets, if I if if the Mookie Betts decision. trade is the biggest moment for Heim Bloom, he's basically just being the scapegoat for that decision. Well, I like, think it's going to be the most memorable move. And it should be on ownership. I, oh, I, I agree with that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I agree with that. But but setting aside the Mookie Betts move, mm-hmm. they've missed the playoffs three out of the last four years. They're going to yeah. finish in the basement, it seems like, of the AL East. Um, yeah. and, and you mentioned the farm system. We have them as the number five farm system in baseball. I think you could argue it from anywhere from five to 10 or so, right? They yeah. have two high-end prospects right now in Marcelo Meyer and Roman Anthony. Both were drafted under Chaim Bloom's watch. Um, you know, how much skill was there? And, you know, you have the number four overall pick. He drafted Meyer. All right, like you took a good 
player. Hey, hey, like, we've we've looked at some recent uh, first rounds, and you could do a lot worse than that. So I think just not missing up there is is worth more than you might think. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I mean, Kyle Teal, their first round pick this year, looking good early on. Mm-hmm. Miguel Blaze is another top 100 prospect. He's in the lower levels. He's been hurt mm-hmm. um, this year. So Dan Raphael is in the big leagues now. He had a, a really nice year in AAA. Uh, you know, a, a player that he, uh, you know, inherited from the previous regime. There, right. There is some pitching in the system. I like Luis Perales. Uh, Wilkeman Gonzalez has been better since he got to double A. Again, a couple guys he inherited. Uh, uh, or was it, yeah, 2000? Uh, no, yeah, July 2nd, 2019. So that would have been right before him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but still a lot of walks again with, with Wilkeman. Um, you know, there, there isn't a ton of pitching in the system, though, so I think it is a good farm system, but I wouldn't say it's a great farm system. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're in the a market like Boston, you're missing the playoffs three or four years, you should have an elite farm system to show for it. And then... Uh, you think... It's not, like they're, it's not like they're finishing at the bottom of the American League Central. I mean, three of those... Three of the years we're talking about here, I guess if you're not counting, you wouldn't count 2019. But they've been a winning playoffs. They've been a winning team. They're in the best division in baseball. I think you can't just say, "Oh, you didn't make the playoffs in the best division in baseball," so therefore you were a terrible team. I mean, if if they were in the AL Central, they would have been competitive each one of these years, seemingly. Well, they, yeah, they haven't been the Oakland A's, but <laughs> it's yeah, you're. I think I, what I'm, I guess I'm basically saying is they haven't been a dumpster fire and they've also done a nice job of revamping the farm system. Like, and I guess it, it seems like as we're talking, my bar for like the expectations for the Red Sox just is clearly lower than, than whatever ownership in Boston thinks it should be. I would say be. it should be above dumpster fire. <laughs> That's, that seems yeah. like a, a reasonable I guess bar. I just feel like you uh, should be yeah. given a little bit more time to see the see if – what you've done at the minor league level is going to actually bear any fruit. And maybe you can make the case that you should have put together a better pitching staff at the big league level. I know they've been one of the worst defensive teams in baseball for the last few years. So, I mean, I guess what are the best moves that Haim has made at the big league level? Maybe that's more questionable, but I kind of just wished he got an, another year or two to see what would happen with all these prospects because it is a nice group of, of offensive players. And if you can kind of build this core uh, and then supplement around it, maybe there's no confidence that he was able to supplement around it, though. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think Clearly that there been wasn't. A, I think it would have been reasonable to keep him in his current position, too. But I, I think you also look around the division. Mm. After four years now, the, the Orioles are in a much better position than the Red Sox to be a perennial playoff club over the next sure after five years. after being a dumpster fire for a long time <laughs> but have but having a specific plan to put that into place yeah i guess i, I guess i would say it it doesn't feel like there was any plan that was followed in boston either that or i would i am unaware of what the actual plan was because clearly baltimore has executed a very easy plan in baseball and just being terrible, picking at the top of the draft as much as you can. And to their credit, doing a good job hitting on players that they took and doing a nice job in, in player development. But And some other good moves at the margins to supplement the, the major league club too. Mm-hmm. But it, just look around the rest of the division too. The Rays are going to make the playoffs for the fifth straight season. And again, I think certainly Bloom played a part in building 
yeah. that Rays organization. He deserves credit for that. The the Blue Jays are going to the playoffs for the third time in four years. The, the Yankees have obviously been a disappointment this year. And it's mm. the first time in seven years that they're going to miss the playoffs. And you have fans there who are just screaming to get rid of Brian Cashman. <laughs> so, Which yeah, also seems at, incredible if, to me. <laughs> right. I, I agree with that. If, if you look at the bigger picture, I don't think Bloom was a disaster GM or, or, or a bad uh, chief baseball officer. He seems like a you know a smart baseball guy. If they'd given him one more year, I, I think that would have been understandable. But um, how long just how long do you think it takes to kind of rebuild an organization? Like if if you wanted to take the systems of Tampa Bay and, and the small market and, and try and replicate what they were able to do there with a big market like Boston, like what do you think is a reasonable timeline to try and make that happen? Because Things obviously don't change overnight. There's a lot of personnel involved in Tampa Bay that you can't just you can't just bring them over with you. Obviously, a lot of the things that the Tampa Bay does is is beyond whoever the top level decision makers are. But what do you think is a reasonable timeline to try and overhaul an organization if if that's what your goal is? I don't know if I know the answer to that. I mean, did it need a complete overhaul? Like, I get the Uh, farm system was toward the bottom of the barrel after they. Uh, used a lot of their bullets to try to build a major league club, but yeah. they had, I mean, they had Tristan Cassis when he came in. They had uh, Jaron Duran and and Brian Bello, and they they there there were players there. I don't know that needed a total overhaul. And mm-hmm. as far as like resources, and they had an opening day payroll this year of it was like one hundred eighty million dollars. You, you could argue they should spend more. That's not unreasonable but they're are they around like 11 right now in, in total payroll yeah i mean they're right in line with the cubs and braves they're they're spending more than the twins the mariners the brewers <laughs> they're spending the more than minnesota and milwaukee and arizona <laughs> good job boston <laughs> well yeah the rays the orioles these other teams that are making the playoffs or are playoff contenders this year and you can mm-hmm. make fair criticisms of red sox ownership well i think simultaneously holding the belief that operationally the decisions that uh, you know that they have made that that bloom has had control over have not mm-hmm. led to a productive major league club over the last four years and you know, like you said like what are the best moves that they've made to help the, the team over the last <laughs> four years I, like roman anthony is a great yeah, that's Great the one traffic. that I, I came up with. 79th overall, Roman Anthony, top 100 prospect. That looks like Gar- a really Garrett great Whitlock value. is a, a great Rule 5 pick. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, like a lot of a lot of what I'm looking at is the draft and player development and amateur stuff. So I'm very focused on that, and I think they've done a nice job in that regard. And so I'm probably yeah, the far- over... Yeah, farm system. Yeah, so I, I, as we're talking here, I think I, I probably am overstating like the, the percentage of how valuable that is to an organization and maybe discounting some of the... Uh, Maybe directions you wouldn't necessarily want to have taken at the big league level with some of these these moves you're talking about, maybe not having made at the margins. Um, just because, again, my, my focus is not on on their big league team every week. So, yeah, I think it's fair. I think you make a compelling point. Uh, I do still think it's pretty tough. I, like we were talking about, I, I think we both think one more year would have been nice to see. But, you know, it's a uh, it's a very tough, tough gig for that reason. Yeah, I think he could still be a very good gm and like you said if he had had another year maybe next year was the year they could have taken a big leap forward but 
mm-hmm. it's it's also been four years <laughs> and not a whole <laughs> not a whole lot of uh recent success to uh or, or a whole lot of winning moves frankly at the mm. major league level to hang your hat on yeah absolutely well i don't have any more thoughts on on bloom do you want to move on to one of these other other moves uh, whether that's the nationals or david stearns to the mets i know you're pretty excited about the stearns move yeah that one oh I, no, I hope nobody was surprised about that one that just seemed like a matter of <laughs> felt like for a year that's been the uh secret that wasn't so secret yeah when in when in 2023 will uh, david stearns <laughs> become the new president of the mets not if but this this is a top tier hire by the mets i think stearns is one of the best executives in baseball just look at his whole look at his resume I and mean, he was an assistant gm with the astros for a few years in that like 2012 2015 window pretty key figure in turning that organization around brewers hire him as their gm before the 2016 season he inherits a 68 win team they miss the playoffs the next two years they actually it was like there's an 86 win season they finish in second place that second year but um, from there on since 2018 the brewers make the playoffs four years in a row it's about to be five uh five in the last six seasons um well obviously matt arnold i guess is is the gm for this year but Mm -hmm. uh, this is the team that's mostly built by stearns although i think arnold is is really a sharp uh baseball guy too i don't want to diminish the role that he's done um both both this year and in his tenure since Stearns mm-hmm. uh brought him on as, as soon as he joined the organization but um but I think Stearns has been very good at managing the the major league roster like you talk about you know again like signature moves in your first four years he trades for trades for Christian Yelich for basically nothing <laughs> trades <laughs> trades Adam Lins to the Mariners and based and steals Freddie Peralta from them when he's in the lower levels of the Mariners farm system uh, Tyler Thornburg to the Red Sox he gets back Travis Shaw uh, it's hard to win a trade with with the Rays he, he traded Drew Rasmussen mm. uh, who who is a good pitcher uh, and has continued to be a good pitcher there but uh, he gets back Willie Adamas in a, a yep. bilo move pretty solid that has worked out well so as far as as managing the major league roster i think his work there has been top notch and then do we do you have any sense of of how heim's reputation i I would imagine he had a lot of the a lot of the same comments about him when he came out of tampa just being involved with that organization at the major league like are you concerned at all that it'll be difficult to replicate that or do you think given his background and expertise and and what you know about him it won't be a situation like boston where you, you can't really bring what the old organization did at a very high level to this new big market because i mean it seems like he is entering a a pretty enviable position here you got an owner that's clearly willing to spend money you've got an improved farm system with a lot of players in the upper levels ready to kind of make their mark um so what are your thoughts on that i think the additional resources will only um will only benefit him Um, i i think i think it's an ideal hire for for the Mets just you look at the track record he has with the major league roster with where the Brewers with the way that he's built up the Brewers farm system and has been able to do so 
even though the Brewers have been picking uh, late in the draft every year because they keep winning. And if you're the Mets, that's that's what you want. I mean, y- you you want to be consistently in a position where you are picking toward the back of the draft and you're able to keep your, um, you know, your farm system extremely well-stocked. He did that in Milwaukee. Now I think you add more resources. It's uh, Andrew, Andrew Friedman did it in Tampa. He went to the Dodgers had, uh, was given significantly more resources at, at his disposal there, both for major league payroll and, um, everywhere else throughout the front office and scouting and player development to invest in, and you're seeing great results there. So I'm not saying there he's going to be able to have that kind of uh, uh, success necessarily because what the Dodgers have been doing has been phenomenal, but, um, but I, I think it's, uh, he's extremely well positioned there. Yeah. You're definitely high on that one. I mean, I don't have any strong thoughts or takes to add to that, but his track record sort of speaks for itself. So it it feels like the Mets are always this sort of looming power, and especially lately they have been. Obviously the Braves just won six straight, so it's not like it's going to be easy. I think the the Braves' young core is is pretty well-positioned even still. Uh, The Mets are quite a bit older at the big league level, but they do have a lot of young players that should be coming up and, and changing that shortly. So it should at least be a fun division over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he revamped their, you know, Milwaukee, their scouting, uh, like their international scouting, especially he overhauled that. Mm-hmm. They were basically getting nothing. Uh, he brought in uh, Mike Grootman, who's, who's now an assistant GM in Boston, and Luis Perez, Fernando Veracierto, a bunch of other pretty sharp scouts throughout Latin America. Mm-hmm. And now they have Jackson Churio, and they have one of the best catching prospects in the game in Jefferson Quiro. It's weird how uh, the teams that, that seem to invest in the international market happen to just magically find good players. You look at Baltimore, too. They they weren't involved for the longest time, and all of a sudden they get involved, and now they've got some, some really impactful international players. Who would have thought that it can happen like that? Well, I think the, the Brewers were investing. They were signing players. They mm-hmm. just weren't signing many. <laughs> they weren't signing the right players. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like Luis Lara, very impressive this season. Yo Ferry Rodriguez, uh, Dominican outfielder, having a really nice year in the DSL. And I mean, he, I, like he's not super hands-on internationally, but it's just an example of where he, he picks smart people, puts them in charge, gives them autonomy to do their jobs, and the results being significantly better than what they were prior to his arrival and and the development side the same thing if you i mean if you think about the teams with the best pitching development track record in baseball one of them has to be the brewers i mean i I think like the mariners dodgers guardians rays Mm -hmm. um, i don't know if there's like others you would put in there but i I would i would throw the braves but i think all the teams you mentioned out there braves and and astros but i think all the teams you just mentioned there are kind of the the ones i would immediately go to as well yeah i I would yeah so i would say the brewers fit among that um if if not maybe not necessarily number one but among Mm -hmm. the upper echelon like we mentioned freddie peralta yeah uh, obviously brandon woodruff corbin burns i mean these were good acquisitions by either their amateur scouting department or, or their pro department but they also weren't plug and play, just try to stay out of the way and not mess them up type guys either. They mm-hmm. really helped bring out uh, the best in 
in these players. Um, and then, yeah, again, they're, they built it up despite not picking high. Uh, they mm-hmm. have four of our top 100 prospects now that uh, Sal Frelick has graduated. Uh, Robert Gasser was a guy they traded for um, in the Josh Hader trade, which was somewhat really good controversial. Um, so they're like their depth through 20 prospects, their top 20 or so prospects is, is pretty strong, uh, even though they haven't been picking high. So, um, yeah, I mean, now you give him Steve Cohen's checkbook at the Mets. <laughs> I think there's just going to be even more avenues for him to pursue, um, you know, the high end free agents and, and position themselves to, um, you know, be a, a perennial contender and, and, and the people who hmm. have, I know, you know, who've, who've worked for him speak extremely highly of him as well. Nice. Um, well, well, that's the Mets. That's the Red Sox. I mean, the Nationals are kind of a little different direction with them. Other teams are, are going in, in new directions. The Nationals agreed to an extension recently with Mike Rizzo. He's been with the organization since 2006. So it's kind of more of the same. But I wanted to bring them up because, again, like I said, last week, they just had a bunch of weird stuff going on. There's all the ownership rumors about whether or not they're going to sell the organization. Um, it was reported that they laid off a bunch of pro scouts as well, and that comes after Rizzo earlier in the year talked about reinforcing that area. The Steven Strasburg shenanigans, like what is your take on where Washington's at right now? With <laughs> Obviously, they're not a very competitive team. I don't think anyone expected them to be a competitive team, but how would you regard what the Nationals have done in scouting, player development, and Rizzo in general if you, if you do have strong takes? But I wanted to at least mention it because... Uh, it kind of goes in with all of our front office talk here. And I mean, the, the Steven Strasburg retirement stuff was just weird. Yeah. Very strange. And then the, you can see why MLB doesn't like when their owners talk much because <laughs> when they do, they tend to just shove their foot deep down their own throats. Like we'll, we look forward to seeing Steven and spring training at the end we'll, some line like that at the mm-hmm. end of, uh, the learners note to, to the fans. It was like, did somebody read that before you <laughs> sent it out? Like, I, I guess they're trying to spin it as though like, Oh, we think he can come and uh, help coach young players in like an advisory. Like, no, nah, that's <laughs> all right. You're, you're trying to do some damage control mm-hmm. at this point. So, I mean, the guy was just such an icon for, for their franchise and so responsible for helping turn turn them around along with you know him and harper obviously and yeah uh, you know other players too but he was such a pivotal figure for that organization he obviously can't pitch they're gonna have to pay him it's, mm-hmm. they, they agreed to the contract so yeah uh, sorry y'all i yeah i mean so, got you a world series so and like you said one of the most iconic players in the franchise's history so very odd to uh, to kind of fumble that bag as, as obviously as they did last week. Very weird. Um, but we can move on and talk some players now. Um, a lot of different directions we can go. There's a ton happening right now with the season wrapping up. More prospect promotions. Um, did you see George Kirby's post-game comments the other week? Did you have any strong thoughts on that one? Because that obviously yeah, I, got, I, that got people fired up. So I wanted yeah. to bring that one up. 
Yeah, I follow baseball and I have an, an internet connection. I don't think you can. You can't. Missed, you can't you know, use one. that line for me every time, Ben. Come on, I'm trying to well, tee you up for these yeah. things, and now you're dragging me. <laughs> <laughs> so George Kirby, if you don't have an internet connection, and you don't watch baseball. Uh, Kirby gave up a game time two run homer on his hundred hundred second pitch, and then after the game, uh, said he wished he wasn't out there for the seventh. To be honest, <laughs> and that obviously got a lot of people very upset. Um, so yeah, what's your take? Do you uh, do you think that that George Kirby is soft because he didn't want to be on the mound, or at least express that he didn't want to be on the mound after a game? I, I I think it's a tough it's tough to talk to players immediately after they're obviously not happy. So I, I tend to give them some slack, and I also think it's it's kind of nice when they don't just have canned responses. So I'm I'm not too hurt about it. I think Kirby probably realized he shouldn't have said exactly what he said and. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's too crazy. Well, he wasn't. It's not like he's the closer who gave up the game-winning mm. run. Like it wasn't right after the game. He probably <laughs> had like an hour or so to. Yeah. To, well, it's certainly to the first time unwind. he's like actively like talking through what happened. I'm sure. Like no one in the dugout's like, "Oh, what did you think about this, George?" Like they're leaving him alone. Like people on a baseball team have feel, and and you can't really have feel when you're a reporter specifically with your job to like ask them about this. So <laughs> you're being needled about it after the game whereas before that I don't I don't think he probably was. So he shouldn't have said it. He's throwing his manager under the bus. Yeah. But I think he recognized it like the next day, if not sooner, that he <laughs> oh, yeah. made I'm a sure mistake. Oh yeah. sure he recognized it really quickly. <laughs> yeah, that it, it should have been a private conversation. Mm. Not a huge deal to me, but he shouldn't have said it publicly. I don't think managers should typically be throwing players under the bus, and I think it cuts both ways. Mhm. Mm um, yeah, well said, Ben. I think that's uh pretty much all there is to it. I wanted to bring up though because it it did create a bit of a kerfuffle and I think people People tend to get really irate about these things, and I mean, it's a young guy who didn't perform well and was upset, and maybe didn't say the the smartest thing. I think we've all been in positions like that, so I don't yeah. think you can get, well, get too crazy for it. Well, I haven't been in that position where I've given up the. <laughs> well, you could be. Well, yeah. No one will let you though. No one will put you in that position. But I think you I, could let yeah. up some runs with the best of them. Oh, I'm just, I certainly, <laughs> but long-term, yeah, like, who cares? I, I don't think it matters. It's, it's good for drama if you're one of those shouting head television or radio shows where you yeah. need people to scream we, about something. We notoriously like just, on this podcast need need things like that, so we have something to talk about. So it is good for yeah. the game. You said you liked that he was honest, though? I didn't like that. I, I just think it's, like, people are always... I guess I, I think that the people who are upset that he said this are also a lot of times the same people who are upset that players just talking cliches. Like people always want players to be honest. I don't think you really want players to be honest because you won't like what they're saying a lot of the times. Like, no, I I think I agree with you mostly, but it's just yeah. I think the like why are you criticizing Kirby for being honest? Like, don't you just want athletes to be honest and not give the bland? Hmm. post-game quotes part like it's pretty easy to reconcile that to me like yeah as a non-partisan observer yes i would love <laughs> all athletes all managers all executives to be brutally honest and 100 <laughs> candid yeah. with their public comments including about their teammates and their yes. manager and other people inside and outside their organization but the issue is that if you're a mariners fan if, or if you just want what is best for the Mariners, you don't want that. Like, yeah, no, like, no kidding. If you have, if 
you have no investment or, or no skin in the game or you're a reporter looking to fill your notebook, like, yeah, it's a lot more entertaining to have totally unfiltered comments. How, but... how quickly do you think a team would just completely go off the rails if every player just was forced to not have a filter? Like they physically were unable to lie <laughs> or just like speak in cliches or tone down their emotions. Like I would love to see that play out, man. There would be so many fights. It would be awesome. It'd be a great, yeah, uh, great baseball movie. Probably Everybody is gets a Neuralink chip <laughs> implanted in them. Elon, get on by, this. Yeah, by the per per order of the CBA, where they're just required to do it, so you can just read people's yeah. minds instead uh, of hiding the quote tweets. It would be like throwing the quote tweets in everyone's faces constantly in the dugout. It'd be amazing. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, good if <laughs> if you have no. If you're if you're a nonpartisan, it's it's great. If you're mm. uh, if if you're a Mariners fan, obviously you don't want your players or your managers making public criticisms <laughs> of each other. So um, probably an easy, not not too difficult to to balance that. <laughs> yeah. All right, moving on to some to some players and some performances. Do you, a number of different directions we can go. There were some recent call-ups. Peter Armstrong was called up recently. I think today, as uh, before we recorded this, it was announced that Hessen Kierstad was being called up to the majors. Mm. Um, so there are two more prospect promotions we can get into if you want. There's also, I wanted to get your thoughts on both Kodai Senga and Masataki Yoshida's seasons, uh, being the, the biggest uh, Japanese imports. And just if you have any thoughts on them this year, Senga has obviously been very good. I think Yoshida has maybe been better than a lot of people expected. Uh, but what direction do you want to head in, Ben? Prospects or, or still more Major League talk? Yeah, well, we talked Mets and, and Red Sox. We can kind of keep on that theme. I, I think Senga with the Mets, I think he said obviously he's been great. I don't know if people – I don't know how many people are following the Mets right now just because they're <laughs> uh, not, not pushing for a postseason spot. But what he's – yeah, what he's been done, whether people are seeing it or not, has been – Outstanding. I mean, 181 yeah, it's, uh, strikeouts we'll in 149 innings, 307 ERA. He's got that just brutally nasty ghost fork. And he's got uh, some sick gloves to go with it. Did you see the glove he was wearing? I think I saw it today. I don't know if he's he's throwing tonight, but <laughs> have you seen the glove that he has? I saw some photo of it, and it's like... Yeah, it's sick. It's like this cool design of a ghost carrying around this pitchfork. It's awesome. Actually, what I was going to say is that if a tweet doesn't really get my attention within, like, the first, like, eight words, I'm just, like, scrolling right past it sometimes. <laughs> so I saw that there was a photo of it, and I just didn't. Wow. I just didn't, I didn't See, this is why I have to ask stuff. you these things. You, you drag me for, for obviously, bringing <laughs> up clean things you clearly saw because you're on the Internet and you're online. But, you know, you missed this one, and it was cool. You need to scroll back up on your feed there, Ben. It was sick. Yeah, it uh... – Maybe yeah. it wasn't on my for you page. I mean, all-star season for Senga. You mentioned the strikeouts. Um, 26 starts, 3.07 ERA, 136 ERA+. Plus. Been a pretty phenomenal year. I think he's been the most consistent starter the Mets have had. Uh, I, I think exceeding the expectations that probably you had for him. We're thinking, what, middle of the rotation arm? He's been pretty good. Yeah, I mean, five years, seventy-five million, and then a team mm. option the, for the year after that. So that's looking that's looking excellent for yeah. for the Mets. He he certainly is not the problem <laughs> with, <laughs> with 
with the Mets. Uh, that's that was a, a really really strong signing for them. Do do you think Yoshida has been better than people expected? Uh, well, I know maybe I overspoke for that one, but I know that when he was signed, there were a lot of scouts who thought Boston signed him for way too much money. There were some people who who thought that he wasn't going to be that great, and then early on, he was really hot. I remember this specifically. I was on vacation in Maine, and, and I had a really strong, not really strong thoughts, but I was probably more towards the pessimistic side of, of Yoshida's outcomes just because we had so many scouts who were questioning it and questioning the impact, and I was probably taking their track more than like Boston's idea of what he was going to be. And very early on in the year, he was struggling. And I came, I think I came back from like a, a vacation in Maine and, and jumped in our BA slack and brought up Yoshida being terrible. And I think the month after that, he just absolutely got on fire and, and started mashing the ball. Um, but you look up right now, it's 126 games. He's hit 291, 345, 455, 15 homers. He's been worth only 0.7 Fangraphs war. Um, I think you could maybe have polarizing thoughts on the player that he is, just given his his old school stats, the WRC plus and offensive numbers versus like the position he's playing, the impact he's providing, and like how good you think his defense is. I don't I don't think he's been that great this year, but what do you think? I think he's been fine. It's good, very good back control. 15, he's going to be a 15 20 home run guy, solid on base skills, running about 15% league uh, above league average offensively, 114 WRC plus, but he is limited to left field and he's mm-hmm. he is a rough defender in left field, so he gives back a good chunk of runs yeah. with his defense. So he's been, like you said, one one and a half war player according to baseball reference and they they have him as a minus six defender yeah fan graphs you said is what 0. 0.7 yeah 0. Uh, 0. so i think his his defensive metrics might be harsher there hmm. on him stat cast their outs above average has him nine runs below average so mm-hmm. he's you know you're costing a, a full win there basically on on defense um so i think that like the most um uh, you're talking about like a one to one and a half win player. Yeah. Uh, if if you think the defense is better, which yeah, visually, I, I don't know that anyone thinks he's any better than a below average defender. Mm. But you can maybe make a case that he's a two win league average player. He is 30 years old. You could you could make the argument that it is his first year facing MLB pitching, going on an MLB schedule. Uh, and that he could still get better from here, but mm-hmm. also given the harsh realities of players in their 30s, <laughs> you're you're just typically looking at the decline phase of a player's career. So, yeah. is he going to be a? Like we said, Sanga was 575. I think that's going to be a great contract for the Mets. Is yeah. Yoshida going to be worth five years, 90 million dollars? I would say it seems like probably not, or at least not entirely. But mm-hmm. he is a, like he is a useful player. He's he's been a fine regular in left field, but he's he's not. He's no Alex he's, Verdugo. He's not. Yeah, he's not an above average. <laughs> I don't think he's an above average regular. If that was the the expectation. Yeah, and I think for some people, I mean that that was the expectation when you, you signed that contract. Um, 
clearly, again, there was a, a pretty severe split camp in opinions about him. So I think it's tracked more towards the, the bottom end of that uh, or, or towards the middle. Again, depending on what you think of the defense, maybe you can throw in the the Fenway Park wrinkle. It's obviously an odd park, maybe more difficult to play. So maybe with, with more reps there, he can improve as an outfield True. defender. But I just think that if you're not playing up the middle, you just need more impact from that position if you're going to play every day, if, if you want to be a contender. Um, and I don't know that he's going to add much more impact. And to your point, like he's already passed uh, what should be his peak years. So I, I don't think you can expect any huge jump in bat speed or power or or to be honest, defensive improvement. So it'll be interesting to see how that one ages. But it's not a, at least for like free agent contracts, I don't think it's a massive deal. Like the, the money is spread out a decent amount. You, you probably aren't going to want to be paying that in the 2026 and 2027 seasons. But I don't think it's large enough to be some sort of albatross. And if he can retain those contact skills, like you said, maybe he can be a useful complementary piece. Yeah. I mean, I do think probably offensively he has exceeded some people's expectations being uh what you said he was hitting what 295 now right? yeah 291 345 solid plate discipline numbers not walking a ton but he also doesn't strike out a lot either i mean he's running a i think an above average um babip so that helps as well um seems like pretty good angles um so yeah yeah i think i think some of the criticism is the stuff we've talked about before where people will react to the and, and talk about a player in reaction to either the perception or the uh, the contract that the player signs or in the draft, the case of the draft, where he was drafted, where, um, you know, if, if you take a guy with an eighth overall pick uh, and you think he should have gone in the second round, you're like, oh, what are they? What is this team doing? Picking this guy in the eight with eighth overall. He should have guy shouldn't have even been a first round pick. Whereas if you get that same player in the fourth round you're like oh i love this guy <laughs> what a, yeah what a what a steal and then you Absolutely. say all the things you like about him instead of things <laughs> you, you don't like so i think there's probably some of uh that aspect to it as well yeah in terms Absolutely. of the initial reaction to his signing no doubt all right let's go to some actually let, let's hit on these call-ups before we get into some more minor league talk uh i think the most notable ones recently are Pete armstrong he had uh he's played three games with the cubs still searching for that first hit um, but I think I think you're always a big Pete Armstrong fan. What are your thoughts on him as a prospect? I know, for me, probably one of the, if not the best defensive amateur defensive center fielders that I've seen. Um, I think the list for me would be Pete Armstrong, Drew Jones, and Enrique Bradfield. At this point, I'm trying to think if there's another player that that I'm missing there that that would come to mind. But those that's, three. That's a good list. Yeah, and I think Pete Armstrong and Drew Jones would be the top two. I mean, just what he was able to do as a high school player, as a defender, and then I was even maybe a little bit lower on his bat than than the prospect that he's turned out to be. It seems like he's got more impact than I expected him to have this year. He hit 20 home runs, 26 doubles, hit 283, 365, 511 between AA and AAA as a 21-year-old. Um, so just a very, again, like, not again, but... The fact that he's going to be able to play center field and play that at such a high level, I feel like just gives him such a huge margin for error. He's going to add value on the bases. I think he's got great instincts overall. Um, but just seeing like what the actual offensive profile is going to be like at the big league level will be really interesting to me. Like I'm not sure what sort of power to expect with him because, I, like I said, I think I've always kind of been a little light on that. But what are your thoughts on Pete Cromshaw? Yeah, he... 
he was one of my favorite players in that 2020 draft. I think I said this at the time, if he had the opportunity to play a normal spring season, I think he would not have been available where the Mets took him toward the back of the first round. Um, yeah, he's I, you know, a 19th I, I guess in overall fairness, pick. Yeah, you could probably say that about so many players, but I, I, mm. I obviously love the defense. I think everybody just raved about what he was able to do defensively um, from a very young age, but just remember seeing him as an underclassman, and the first thing I really liked about him was his bat. I thought he had very mature ability to manipulate the barrel uh, go with where the ball is pitched, hit the ball to all fields, make a lot of contact. I thought he'd be uh, uh, at least a plus defender in center field and mm-hmm. project as a, a top of the order hitter who would hit and, and get on base at a a pretty strong clip. And now you're seeing power come with him too. So um, there's good reason why why we have him uh where is he now the number 12 prospect in wow in baseball. i didn't realize so, he was that high oh yeah you know he's <laughs> i knew he had moved up but when he said 12 i'm like wow really 12 that's crazy yeah i mean what premium premium defender premium yeah. position performance at a young age i mean we're talking a. we're talking through him here and it it's not like a terribly different profile to evan carter and i almost might prefer Crow Armstrong now that we're talking through that? How, how do you view those two? Mm, yeah. I think same, Crow same, might be a little more electric. <laughs> same same draft class. Carter is 10. PCA is 12. Um, I mean, Dylan Cruz was that. I mean, that was that was the year with Dylan Cruz, right, in, in high school. His, yeah. his high school season. I guess technically what Wyatt Langford would have been that year too, but he wasn't that. He was a nobody then. <laughs> Yeah. Oh boy, is he somebody now? Oh my God, he is annihilating Double A right now. He is. Um, uh, and anyone who watched the College World Series is probably unsurprising. Some of the home runs he's hit uh, already in pro ball. The the torque that he is able to just generate is so fun to watch. I think I mentioned it in our Slack either today or yesterday. Like, I think Bryce Harper has one of the most fun, violent swings in baseball, and I think Wyatt Langford might be the right-handed version of that just there's so much force that he's able to generate it's it's crazy and on top of the power that he has he's an extremely advanced hitter in terms of offensive upside i think you could go you could be as excited about wide langford as any prospect in baseball right now i think yeah probably him him cruz junior camonero yeah, like if I I think I would take Cruz overall, but if you wanted to say that you're more excited about Langford's hit and power combination, yeah, I just mean offensively, sure. Yeah, you could take him over Cruz. I think Camonero fits there. I think, I mean, you definitely have more power now than Jackson Holiday. Obviously, a lot of Jackson Holiday's prospect value is the fact that he's left-handed hitting shortstop, who's going to do a lot of things well. But Langford is a beast with the bat. I don't yeah, know. I Has mean, he played any center field at all? I don't. I don't really know that it's going to matter, but. Yeah, I don't think he's playing center field for yeah <laughs> for them at any time, um, long term. But uh, well, I shouldn't say any time. But it mm. doesn't seem it seems like left field. Yeah, who cares? His position is hitter. Um, but yeah, I mean, with PCA and Evan Carter, that's pretty close. Yeah, mm. I think you could argue it 
argue it either way. That's why they're that's why they're ten and twelve. Yeah, absolutely. All right, how about Hessen Kerstad then? Again, twenty twenty draft class. He's quite a bit older, obviously, as a college player entering his uh, or not entering, but in his age twenty four season. He's I think we've talked about him a few times on the podcast, but he's had a really strong year. Obviously, with the injury stuff that he dealt with, missing a lot of time, uh, maybe you could say that that he's behind schedule. But 303, 376, 528 with a 904 ops between AA and AAA, 21 home runs, 29 doubles, 100 strikeouts, 42 walks. This is a guy who's increasingly grown on me. At the time of the draft, I was just absolutely stunned that Baltimore took Kerstad over the wonder kid out of Vanderbilt in, in Austin Martin. And now that one looks pretty, pretty phenomenal in hindsight. He's been great, but what are your expectations with him? You obviously don't have the same up the middle profile. Uh, but for me, I'm really excited about just the hit and power combination. I think there are some OBP skills there as well. I don't think it hurts to have a left handed hitting power bat in that ballpark. And the Orioles have quite a few of those now. Yeah. What he's done certainly merits uh, a call up and merits an opportunity um, I, I do think he's he's a little aggressive as a hitter. I, I don't know that. Well, I'm curious to see where the on base percentage ends up ultimately. Like he has gotten on base at a pretty high clip, obviously throughout the minor leagues, because uh, he does make a lot of contact and he does hit the ball hard. There is power there um, defensively. I, I don't know if there's anything that's really going to jump out on that side, but. Uh, I think yeah, there's there's certainly a lot of things to to like with him. It's kind of it's it's fun now to see these guys getting an opportunity to actually make an impact in in Baltimore. Um, but yeah, like I think I think it's an aggressive approach, but it seems to seems to have worked for him so far. And there's definitely a good swing, good contact, and and there is plus power there too. Yeah, he's just a fun story. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not too worried about the the strikeout rate overall. Maybe I'll be wrong about that. Not so but... much the strikeouts. It's it's the more the tendency to expand the zone chase rate. At, yeah, at time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll be an interesting one to watch. But again, good pick in hindsight. Uh, hopefully, he can kind of continue to translate that to the big league level. Um, we'll see what happens. All right. Um, let's see here. We can talk through. So Josh had a few pieces on the website this week, um, ranking the top 20 players. I think Josh did both. Correct me if I'm wrong with that, Ben, but ranking the top 20 players from the uh, both the complex leagues in Arizona and Florida. Mm-hmm. Did, he did both. Okay. So we can talk through those lists and just standouts from low A. We can talk through uh, the Marcelo Meyer situation, uh, just getting into his injury and how that maybe impacts our like expectations for him we have a lot of listener questions so it's just kind of whatever direction you want to head at this point the well marcelo meyer is interesting mm. to me because we we talked about him on a previous episode right yeah um what so so all right so what happened with him was he told he told rob bradford of weei that he said that on May 7th that he was rounding second base to go for a triple. He fell, and the next day he woke up and couldn't lift his left shoulder. So through that point in the season, 
Meyer, he was in high A. He was hitting 337, 414, 582 in 111 plate appearances. Uh, 12% walk rate, 22% K rate. He then, he was out a week, but he came back a week later, then got promoted to double A at the end of the month. And it's interesting because from the time he came back on May 14th until that May 28th promotion, in that time he hit 192, 264, 404 over two weeks. (laughs) So when he came back, he was not hitting that well, but the Red Sox promoted him anyway. Mm. And then obviously for anyone who's been paying attention, Myers really struggled in double A. He hit 189, 254, 355 in 190 plate appearances over 40 games. And now he's been shut down since August 2nd. So he missed the final month plus of the season so I'll just, this, this is what Meyer said about coming back one week after the shoulder injury uh, he said quote I, I ended up taking that week off come back playing a little too soon because the competitor in me wanted to play and didn't want to rest so I got used to playing hurt and ever since then it became a cycle and never really got better Uh, It's a good learning lesson on my end. Looking back at it, I should have definitely taken care of it. Uh, You're here to play, and obviously it didn't work out for me because I thought it was going to get better over time, but it just kept getting worse and worse and worse, so I decided to say something to the trainers. So um, He went on to say that it was messing with his swing. His shoulder was giving out on him. It affected other things in his swing because he was trying to compensate for the pain or, or the limitations in his shoulder. Hmm. So if, if you just look at the numbers for him through the season, so again, like before he hurt his shoulder, 337, 414, 582, and 111 plate appearances, 12% walk, 22K rate, uh, 245 ISO. After he returns from the injury, 190, 256, 366 in 243 plate appearances, 8% walk, 26% Ks, uh, 176 ISO. Yeah. So so the OBP drops 158 points. Slugging is down 200-plus points. Uh, walk rate is down 4 percentage points. Strikeout rate up 4 percentage points. Uh, obviously not the direction you want it to go. Uh, and the ISO is down 70, uh, 69 points. Hmm. Uh, he, he did move up a level, so so he's facing better pitching, but um, but he also still struggled in high A for that brief time when when he returned. So I think given what what Meyer said, and I think he's being very honest here, they, they did shut him down yeah. at, at the beginning of August because of the injury. I think it explains a lot about Absolutely. his season and it isn't entirely surprising to me that he was playing hurt from uh, just from what we talked about before yeah no i think it it probably makes you feel a lot better if you were like a little bit worried about what the season meant for him as a prospect i imagine this like almost entirely removes a lot of the questions that you might have had because you have this this explanation that really it, it explains all of the uh, the performance that he had. It lines up with the date pretty immediately. Like you said, he was 
he was absolutely crushing it. Gets hurt, misses a week, comes back, never the same. I don't. I don't think it's too complicated. I think it's like, I think it's a good thing that Myers' first thought is that he wanted to keep playing. Like, I think that tells you a little bit about his mentality. He, he's kind of this grinder. He wants to go out there. He wants to prove himself. He doesn't want to make excuses for himself. I think it is like the coaches and the team's responsibility to try and help the players. Uh, like protect the players from themselves at times and it does seem like he's kind of acknowledged that that he should have gone about the injury a little bit differently so hopefully that'll help him in the future when he's kind of trying to manage these maybe ticky tack injuries that can turn into something more uh, or, or maybe if it was just not ever a, a minor injury at all like just taking injuries more serious because it is a grind um, he's probably always a player that wants to be on the field I mean he's always been a position player playing every day uh, so I do hope that this will prevent him like trying to emulate this Ironman baseball mentality that is very, I mean, it's hard to ignore. There are a lot of players that obviously pride themselves on playing every day, um, players that acknowledge that they're going to play through injuries if they're not serious. So there is a point where that can kind of, like there's a line at some point where, where you do need to sit out and it is better for you in the long run to, to actually get healthy. So hopefully this will help him in the future. And I think for, for me, um, yeah, it just kind of erases any of the doubts I might have had given the production, uh, given what we had talked about in the past. I'm almost ready to just entirely give him a mulligan for this and keep him in kind of this elite group of, of prospects that we, we still have him in. Like, I don't know that I think – I think I've always been slightly more Lawler than Meyer, uh, but I've always thought of them pretty similarly in terms of their prospect value, and I think uh, especially after this I would still have them in that same regard maybe. How about you? Well, yeah, it's, when you're 20 years old, you think you're invincible. So I, I get why he's playing through it. I, I do yeah. think that internally the Red Sox should be asking themselves what happened where they allowed one of their best, pro- one of the one of the best prospects in baseball to mm. come back from a shoulder injury after a week and then play through it for more than two months without having him take a little more yeah. time off to heal uh, instead of having him play through it and potentially making it worse but um you know there there has to be some two-way communication on that as yeah, well absolutely um, do you is is Meyer a player that you would want to see like in the afl uh this fall or would you rather him just kind of take the entirety of the offseason off get healthy come back next year ready to go i, I guess uh, it's impossible to know without knowing like where he's at in terms of rehabbing the shoulder and, and how it's feeling but yeah, I don't think it. I think the health needs to be the number one priority, whether it's the AFL or somewhere in winter ball. Maybe he could play, but I, I don't think that's super critical um, for him to play anywhere yeah. this offseason. Um, for, so for you, it, it makes you a lot more optimistic about him going forward. Just yeah, I think be, so. Yeah. Like, like if there was any sort of discount that that in my head I had pushed towards him because of his struggles, like similar to how I thought about Brady House a year ago, like his numbers weren't great last year. He was dealing with a back injury the whole time. I almost in my head was like, okay, yeah. let him get healthy, let him come back, let's see what he does a year from now. I still believe in the tools, I believe in the talent. So, if he's dealing with a serious injury, it makes sense that that the numbers weren't great. So. I'm not going to continue to hold that against him if there's a very clear and obvious reason that that lines up with with the performance that that you kind of outlined for us. So yeah, I, I think it's pretty much back to square one. The, exactly how I thought about him entering 2023 is kind of how I think about him now. So just hope he gets healthy. Hope 
hope him playing through any injuries didn't create any tendencies or swing changes that might impact him moving forward. But once he gets healthy, I don't anticipate that being the case. I mean, Corbin Carroll's had a few shoulder injuries, and he seems to be just plugging along. Obviously, not not every player is the same, but no, I, I feel pretty confident. I think I think he's a really good defender. Uh, I like the swing a lot, just great instincts overall. I like the frame, like the power potential. Um, I don't think he'll ever be the fastest guy in the world, but I don't think he'll really need to be either. I generally agree. On the one hand, it's it's good that there is an explanation for why he struggled so much in AA, that there was an injury that was masking his true talent level, that his performance there is not truly emblematic of of his talent uh of his talent level or or of his potential so that that's a favorable point that whether you're looking at the numbers he produced or you're scouting him at the field and wondering you know maybe what's what's going on with his swing or or why isn't why he is not hitting the ball as hard as you might expect there's context to feel more confident that the the player we saw in 2022 uh, and early in the 2023 season is is going to be there again once he's mm. fully healthy. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Are, are there any other players this year that that have either struggled or or haven't had great numbers that that you're still a believer in, whether or not that's tied to an injury uh, like Meyer, or just because for whatever reason you you think that they'll uh, be better in the future? I guess players players who, if you look at their performance this year, it's maybe not impressive, but you're still buying as prospects. Uh, there are, but, uh, but just back to Meyer for one second, yeah. because at the same time, a, a current shoulder injury, especially one that he's had now for this long or this long of an effect on him, it does create, I think some additional risk that he's more likely to get hurt again. I'm not saying that he's injury prone. It it could very well end up being a one-time thing, but yeah. I do think that past injuries can be indicative of future injuries. It mm-hmm. could end up being a recurring thing. Corbin Carroll, who you said, I mean, he tore his shoulder. He tore his labrum swinging a bat when he was in the minor leagues. He came back. He's been fine. He's going to be the rookie of the year. Uh, but but even even with him, we've seen in, in multiple occasions this season, he's had to leave games because of uh, shoulder problems. Now, he hasn't missed significant time, but... I would say overall, I think it's it makes me more optimistic about Meyer knowing that, oh, yeah, the, the struggles he's had are probably in large part related to him just having a zapped shoulder yeah. <laughs> and, and playing through it. But it is something to monitor, too, in case it adds some additional um, injury or, or health risk for him um, with that shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a good point. It, it it only can add to his injury risk, I'd imagine, because like you said, the best uh, the best evidence for future injuries are just previous injuries. And, and once you injure a certain part, it's just a little bit more likely that you're going to do it in the future. So hopefully um, he can avoid anything super serious or long term and he's able to manage it and rehab it fully. But no, I think kind of adding that to maybe your risk assessment for him as a player, even if you're confident about the the struggles this year and, and putting them into proper context um yeah that all makes sense to me yeah and as far as other players who kind of maybe somebody else who could be in the same or, or a similar vein would be zach veen mm. with the rockies i mean similar to 
similar to Marcelo Mari of a, a talented prospect who has been playing through an injury, right? He had, he had surgery on his left wrist in June. And if you just look at his numbers, as you're double A, you're like, is that Zach Veen? Like he hit, <laughs> he hit 209, 304, 308 in 46 games in double A. He's 21 years old and he, and he reached double A last year and he wasn't, I mean, he was 177, 262, 234, and 34 games there hmm. in 2022. But it sounds like this is an injury that really tracks back to 2022, or he was in the outfield. Uh, he's diving. He, he hurts himself. I'm not saying I'm all in on, on Zach Veen, but I do think if you're just looking at what he's done since he got to double A, I don't think that's going to be fully indicative of what he could do when he's fully healthy, when he doesn't have to, you know, deal with that give in his hand or, or in his wrist um, because Zach Veen should not have two home runs in, <laughs> in 200 plate appearances. I, I think his health was likely uh, obfuscating his true talent level. Yeah. That's a good one. I've got a player who is, is coming back from an injury that, that I still like quite a bit, even though the numbers aren't great. Uh, it will probably not surprise you to learn that this player is Dylan Lesko. Um, the control has just been pretty bad this year for him. He's pitched at low A. He's pitched at high A with Fort Wayne. Overall, it's a 5.45 ERA, 33 innings, 12 starts, um, 52 strikeouts, 22 walks. I watched a few of his recent starts, and it just seems a lot more scattered and sprayed than than he was in high school prior to his Tommy John surgery. Um, the stuff still looks pretty good. Still mid-90s fastball. The changeup still looks like a plus pitch. It just seems like he's not fully synced up in his delivery, and I think, or at least I hope, um, that that's just partially related to re- recovering from the injury as he gets further away from that. He'll get back to his, his typical self. Um, so I'm still pretty high on Dylan Lesko and willing to kind of give him some time to get further away from that, come back after another offseason, and see if he can rein in the control. Because seeing six walks per nine next to Dylan Lesko's name just feels so unnatural. And if you watch him, it's just very clear that his feel for his release point is not ideal. Like he's letting the ball, he's spiking the ball at times with his fastball specifically. Um, it just doesn't seem like the lower and upper halves are as in sync as they were when he was in high school. And I think once he's not establishing the fastball as like this changeup dominant pitcher, like things go a little bit sideways from there, especially versus right-handed hitters. And in one of his most recent starts for Fort Wayne, it was actually interesting. He seemed pretty confident attacking lefties with this changeup and, and using that to establish the strike zone. For righties, it's not a pitch that maybe he's going to be able to go to as often for that. And his his platoon splits are actually pretty stark. Let me pull them up here. This year, um, against right-handed hitters, um, right-handed batters against Dylan Lesko this year, hitting 295, 436, 443. Left-handed batters are hitting 186, 284, 322. Big it's reverse n- splits guy. Yeah, and it's not too surprising just considering how changeup dominant he is. I, I still wish he would throw the curveball more. I think it's a really good pitch. I think that might help alleviate that in the future. But I also think just establishing his fastball for strikes will really help him because I, I think the changeup can be a swing and miss pitch and an out pitch versus righties and lefties. It just seems like for whatever reason he's more comfortable 
throwing that change up early in the count to lefties. Um, so I'm hopeful that once the command comes back, those splits will, will won't look quite as drastic. And the fact that the stuff still looks pretty solid has me excited. I think he has gotten a little bit thicker in the lower half. Um, that's not surprising for a high school pitcher when they get into pro ball, especially after you're coming off an injury like that, um, to bulk up a little bit. I think the body still looks good. But basically, I'm still in on him. Uh, hopefully, next year, the, the delivery just looks a little bit more synced up and we get back to that like fastball command precision pitcher that, that Lesko was as a high schooler. So it seems I like the typical progression too for coming back from Tommy John surgery where it sounds yeah. like his stuff is still really good. I mean, maybe not throwing the breaking stuff as, as much, but mm. uh, it sounds like the stuff is still there. Or yeah. And I don't know come back, but you kind of expect the command to be something that might still lag behind, especially for a high school pitcher mm-hmm. having Tommy John surgery coming out his first, opportunity in pro ball now yeah and i wouldn't even say that he's like not throwing the breaking ball as much post-surgery because he really didn't throw it a ton pre-surgery either so i think it's just a a matter of like his approach and playing to his strengths uh so i'm not sure if the the breaking ball usage is a post-surgery thing or just the fact that he's always had a 70 change up and likes to use that pitch but i do think i'd like to see him throw it more uh or at least and, and maybe that's just not a breaking ball that that he's going to be able to establish in the strike zone as much. So maybe that's something to watch for him moving forward. Cause I do think the fastball command is going to be pretty important for him. So that's one for me. You have any others? Uh, just as far as guys who have struggled this year, I think can yeah, bounce or, back. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. I, I think Cam Collier, another 20 what was last year, 2022 draft pick. Is, is somebody who it hasn't been a terrible year, but it, it was not what you're not what you're hoping for from your first round pick uh, for the Reds, uh, especially for a guy who's supposed to be an offensive minded player. Um, mm-hmm. Third baseman drafted uh, last year. He played in low A. He hit 246, uh, 349, 356 in 111 games, 57 walks, 106 strikeouts. Only six home runs, but I, I think there's still a lot of reason for optimism here. Uh, one, let's keep in mind, he's 18 years old, right? He's a 2022 draft pick who originally was in the 2023 high school class. So normally this would be his draft year where he would have been in rookie ball and, and maybe a, a taste of low A, like we've seen with guys like Walker Jenkins or Kevin McGonigal, uh George Lombard Jr., those those players who are his age. Uh, I, I think there's a lot to like with his swing, the power, or at least the raw power. Uh, that's there. Uh, he's hitting the ball hard. If you look at the like the upper end exit velocity numbers, it's right there with you know Jason Dominguez or Jackson Churio, even like Samuel Basayo. Um, now he's not hitting the ball as hard consistently as those players. He has more of a an all fields approach, and I think that when he, which is a good thing to have, I think that when he learns to turn on and lift certain pitches to uh, to take his chances to try to drive the ball in the air for more pull damage that's where you're going to see more game power emerge. And and then I think too, he's also just gotten himself into trouble at times this year, expanding the zone uh, against breaking stuff. 
Um, if he's swinging at strikes, he doesn't miss much. That That is a, uh, a good strength of his. From what I've seen, if, if he can tighten up some of that chase on breaking stuff, th- there are a lot of other mm. components to his offensive game, the, the swing, the ability to um, make a lot of contact when he's swinging at strikes, and then the raw power that's in there that I think is just a matter of, of time and adjustments to be able to get to. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to, uh, to be pretty bullish on Cam Collier. Yeah, I'm with you on Cam. I mean, you've long been high on Cam. I've long been pretty high on him. I think you make a lot of good points. I think the age factor is still pretty significant with him. The fact that he is the same age as, as what a high school senior would be this year. The power, like you said. It, it's interesting to think about his his opposite field approach and, and how that will change or maybe won't change in the future. Like Josh Young was really criticized for that when he was coming out of college. Oh, he, he didn't pull the ball. He didn't turn on the ball. That one really doesn't ever concern me as much. Cause again, I would much rather a guy just be really good at hitting opposite field and just learn to pull the ball more often than the opposite way around. I think it's much easier mm-hmm. to like, I think it's much easier to just decide to pull the ball and be good at it rather than deciding to hit the ball the other way. One is significantly harder than the other that's why that's why so many bad hitters are just pull heavy at times you don't see a lot of hitters who were like naturally oppo heavy that's not really very common um so i, I like a lot of the things you brought up there a i think too if you're i was gonna say i think too especially yeah. if you're hitting the ball the opposite way by design too right if you just don't have bat speed and you're just late yeah. and you're hitting the ball the opposite way absolutely yeah all right like there's some just... intention there like to your point, there were a few high school players. I was going over my notes for some high school guys I saw this showcase season who they were hitting the ball the other way, but I think they were just consistently late. The bat is slow. It doesn't get to launch position at the right time, um, whether that's a just a pure bat speed issue or a pitch recognition issue. Like, they're just not on time. Cam Collier was never that way. He was just perfectly fine to hit the ball the other way when he was pitched on the outer third. So it's not surprising to me that he's still kind of been doing that and you're waiting for him to sort of turn on the ball with a little bit more authority more more frequently. Yeah, whereas if you have a, a young hitter who's extremely pull-heavy, it's often indicative of a hole in their swing, too, that's going to get exploited more uh, or just a lack of adjustability in their swing that um, is really going to hamper them as they start facing better pitching that's going to be harder for them to make adjustments to yeah um i've got one another player from the 2022 draft class another high high profile player that's termar johnson um his numbers i don't know if they'd qualify for being bad per se they're they're certainly unusual uh between low a with bradenton and high a with greensboro 105 games he's hit 244 422 18 home runs, 12 doubles, 120 strikeouts, 101 walks. Um, similar exit velocity data to Cam Collier. He's hitting the ball hard. His top end exit velocity numbers are good. Uh, he barrels the ball a decent amount. I think it's probably just a little bit more swing and miss than I maybe expected with Termar Johnson. But at the same time, kind of kind of in the opposite, opposite way of Collier, where, where Collier really doesn't seem to miss end zone. Uh, but maybe has some chase questions that you want to see him improve. Jamar will miss a little bit in zone. I think he misses a little bit overall uh, more than more than Collier does, but he also doesn't expand the zone much at all. 
and I really I think appreciate he has like 100 walks, doesn't he? Yeah, he's one of the league or one of the minor league leaders in walks. Um, the walk it's rate. Be, it's good to be five foot seven. Five <laughs> Absolutely. Foot the walk rate at both levels has been over 20%. His chase rate overall is right around 20%. I think that's like 10 points better than Collier, who you mentioned. You'd like to see him sort of improve some of those swing decisions as he gets more time. Like the fact that Tamar's still hitting the ball hard, the fact that he's still getting on base, the fact that he has been hitting for power. Because um, even though I was pretty high on his power coming out of high school, it's just, I guess, encouraging and reinforces my belief in his power that he's actually shown it in game, in pro ball, with wood bats, against pro pitching. I like all of that. I, I hope that he can just maybe get a little bit more, um, a little bit more contact in the future. I know there's been some questions about him being passive, about him really just not wanting to swing at breaking stuff a lot this year so some of those things i'm hoping he can improve on to to get the average up a little bit more but overall i'd say i'm still buying tamar johnson even though maybe if you look at his numbers you would think oh not really what you would want to see from an early first round pick who had one of the most impressive reputations as a pure hitter that, that we've seen in 10 20 years coming out of high school got it so the guy you think can turn it around is the guy who uh has a hundred plus walks and is hitting. Yeah, for yeah. If you if you don't think that one counts, then I'll take that one. But you know, I think I know. I think it's probably we're expecting a maybe just at least like a different shape to his offensive mm. performance this year. I think. I mean, we knew he had power. Um, I mean, some people were see, kind of skeptical of his power. I was kind of surprised. Well, maybe you and I, I should say, <laughs> knew he had power. If, if you just watch him take BP and see the bat speed this guy has, yeah, that should not surprise you. But I, I thought he would have a much lower strikeout rate. Exactly, yeah. Than he has. That that part has been surprising to to me. So I, I, I am optimistic, like you are, that he can find a better um, kind of balance between contact and and power. Because I, I, I do think he has the ability to manipulate the barrel um, better better than what he has shown uh, this year. I think he's just like a real high baseball IQ yeah. type guy. I, I'm, I'm optimistic that he will, um, you know, figure it out. I mean, we, we have him in our top 100, obviously. Like, we still are still pretty uh Yeah, pretty I chose two top 100 guys. I guess I didn't really go out on a huge <laughs> limb here, so sorry about that. <laughs> you well, have any others? The, yeah, I think Kyle Manzardo is a guy who, you know, who has been a top 100 guy as well, whose season has been, again, like not terrible, but if you... The Rays traded him away. He's he's a bum. They traded him away for a reason. Well, Will, Will Adamas is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, the... Like like overall, he's a what like long term first base prospect who's hitting two thirty six, three thirty nine, four thirty five overall, with almost entirely in triple A between mm-hmm. the two levels. I, I certainly would have thought he would hit a lot better than that, but he's still making he's making a lot of contact. He's drawing walks like the on base percentage isn't high because the the batting average isn't high but the there's power there too like he's not just all of a sudden making soft contact um yeah so it's like a 90 mile an hour average 
exit velocity. Um, he's not chasing a lot out of the zone. Uh, when hitters are attacking him, he, he's not showing a ton of swing and miss either. So I, I think all of the skills, all of the components are still there for him to be a, a good offensive player and turn things around and be an everyday regular at first base. Uh, but obviously he's going to have to hit better, uh, significantly better than what he's shown this year because the slash line, that that's not going <laughs> to cut it uh, at first base. But I think everything – the skills and the components are still in place for him to turn into that player. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I, th- I think that if, if there was a little bit more flexibility in the defensive profile, maybe I'd be a little more excited. You, you really want those first base only types to mash and, and kind of remove all doubt with Cam Collier and, and Tamar. At least they're not first base only. Even if you don't think they're going to be great defenders, they got a chance to play other positions. But uh, I think that's an interesting one. Any others? Uh, we gave a pitcher. I'll give a pitcher to like. I don't think Christian Mena with the White Sox. Eh, it's like a four sixty six ERA, and a mm. lot of that came in the Southern League where they had the uh, souped up baseballs that have been amenable for the <laughs> the pitchers <clears throat> this year. And he got promoted to Triple A. You know, hasn't been great there, but. Um, He's, he's still 20 years old. Like he's moved extremely quickly through through that system. Not not entirely sure <laughs> he should have moved that quickly. I don't think it's necessarily going to impede him. But um, there's not like an overpowering fastball, but uh, it does get good carry. There's feel for spinning. Uh, I think in Higgs has a couple of breaking balls. Um, that get a lot of swing and miss for him. So I think he he has two two pretty good swing and miss pitches. I, I think there's some mm. feel for feel for a change of it. It comes in pretty firm. Uh, it does have some good life and and movement to it. But I, I think the breaking stuff in particular, if he can add a little bit more to his fastball, there's definitely components there to. Uh, be able to miss bats. I'm not saying he is necessarily like a future top 100 prospect, but mm. um, if we're just looking at guys who haven't had like great years statistically, who I think have the ability to, uh, you know, take a, a step forward at some yeah. point in the future, uh, he would be a, a candidate for me. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I got another pitcher who's kind of interesting. I'm curious what you think, and it's basically. From JJ's story a few weeks ago, or maybe a few days ago, I'm kind of losing track of time. But Jack Leiter, if you look at his overall numbers, oh man, <laughs> he's <laughs> the numbers have not been great. And as the first pitcher selected in the um, was it the 2021 draft, you probably would have ex- expected him to maybe even be in the majors at this point. He was he was seen as pretty quick mover. He started his career in Double A uh, in 2022. He's repeated the level in 2023. The overall numbers look pretty similar um, year over year. It was a 5.54 ERA in 2022 compared to a 5.17 ERA this year. Uh, it was a 10.6 strikeout rate. This year it's at 11.9 strikeout rate. This is strikeouts per, not, per nine. The walk rate is exactly the same. Uh, but but JJ kind of broke down some changes to Lighter's delivery after he spent uh, a little bit of time on the developmental list. 
and it seems like the changes have actually helped him improve his control. The delivery is a lot more under control than it was previously. And if you look at his last three starts compared to his first uh, 15, the strikes are the strikes are up. The results are better. Um, and I think the biggest question with Leiter has, has kind of consistently been the strike throwing since he's been in pro ball. It's never been um, uh, really outside of these last three starts as good as it was in college. Uh, but his first 15 games this year, he posted a 5.51 ERA and had an overall strike percentage of 60%. In his last three starts since the overhaul delivery, it's a 3.18 ERA. The strike rate is 66%, and he struck out 16 batters and walked three. So while like Jack Leiter is not my favorite pitching prospect in the world, I am intrigued with these new tweaks um, because if he's throwing his stuff more for strikes, the stuff is pretty good. And I think that he's got a chance now. Whereas, like previously, I was kind of I was kind of down and out on him. But but this new and improved Jack Leiter has me intrigued. Where are you at with him now? I think intrigued is fair to say. I loved him uh, coming out of Vanderbilt. I yeah. like the pick a lot for the Rangers, and there hasn't been a lot to like since then. Um, yeah. But man, it's tough. Like it's it's three starts. It's you know, yeah. three innings, three and a third, five innings. It doesn't necessarily look like the the Jack Lighter we were ex- or that I was expecting. Yeah, coming out of Vanderbilt, but yeah, I mean the delivery. There's definitely. It took what like almost two full months off mm. to make these in season to try to make some pretty significant <clears throat> mechanical adjustments. Yeah, his and, his posture to start his delivery is a little bit different. The overall tempo is quite a bit slower. He has ditched an overhead movement um, and now keeps his hands kind of at his belt uh, or chest throughout the windup. And it just seems like that's kind of helped him sync up a little bit better. At least that's what the results seem to indicate early on. But to your point, it is it is pretty early. But I think with pitchers, I, I, I am more confident in, in taking things away from small changes with pitchers quicker than I am with hitters. I feel like you can you can kind of evolve a lot quicker as a pitcher than you can as a hitter. But I think we're right to still be a little guarded with our expectations for him, just considering the track record. Yeah. I mean, he's had good three start stretches before. Um, uh, I think there was like one in, uh, let's see, there was one here in, in May where he was throwing, you know, 64% strikes. Yes. Three starts, 17 innings, yeah. 159 ERA, 25 strikeouts, five walks. Uh, and then it kind of unraveled mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, after that. So would like to see it done over a more sustained period of time. I can't just throw out what we've seen for mm-hmm. the last two years, but there's at least some reason now for optimism, uh, maybe guarded optimism headed into 2024 that there's there's something here. Um, not, we're not going to run him back into the top 100, but he's, <laughs> you know, there, there's some early signs for hope, which is nice to see. So you're, you're more excited about their most recent first round pick than, than lighter. I take it. Uh, the guy slugging like eight <laughs> something in double A, uh, obviously very limited playing time, but, uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. I think I might have to get with you on that one. 
Okay. Uh, are there any other names? Uh, did you did you have more? Or? Uh, I don't think I had any more. Yeah. If you had those, any are, more. those are kind of the main guys. I don't think Owen Murphy with the Braves counts. Uh, you, uh, you don't think a season is bad enough? You're saying, or what? Well, I, I like it's. I mean, I look at the. You know, I, I, he was a first round pick last year. He's a four seventy two ERA, but like I think it's kind of obvious that with the the strikeouts, he's he's throwing a lot of strikes. This, this yeah. stuff is there. Like they're promoting him. <laughs> it's, yeah, the uh, peripherals are pretty good. I don't, I don't think I'd get too too concerned with with him right now. Yeah. Um. Yeah, let's let's get into some questions then. Yeah. Um, let's see. We have one from Jackson Lastowski on Instagram. He asks, "How much do you have Samuel Basayo rising on the top 100 after his hot streak?" Um, we moved him pretty high up, didn't we? He's number 43 right now. <laughs> uh, so I guess is this question like is he going to keep going up or is this person because we've been updating the top 100 pretty frequently do you think he's going to have a much much higher bump going into the off season and coming out into next year do you expect him to be in a much higher place um or do you think we have him in kind of an accurate spot right now accounting for kind of what he's done this year well our last like real full update i think was at the top 100 update was at the beginning of August, August, like early yeah. August. Now we keep updating it because so like Sal Freelich graduates, right? So we add a mm. new number 100 or like Christian Encarnacion uh, Strand graduates at a, you know, replace him with a new number 100 prospect, right? So we haven't done a full update since then. Um, and since then, like if you look at like the last, uh, so the last 20 games for Basayo, he's hitting 409, 506, 873 with eight home runs in 20 games. And he's doing this getting promoted uh, from low A to high A. And now I think he's in double A um, for, for what I think their, their playoff stretch run now i think they're gonna be in the playoffs so he's in double a he just turned 19 years old in like what 30 days ago august Mm. 13th is his birthday so yeah he's not going any lower (laughs) like (laughs) uh, i think he i think he has a case to be a top 25 prospect um he's a, a catcher for now uh whether he stays there long term, I, I don't know. I, I think he has a chance to do it just in a vacuum, but they also have Adley Rushman there. So, like, kind of tough to see him playing that position in Baltimore. Um, not that they, I, th- I think he'd be a, an extremely valuable trade chip, but he, he also looks like, man, if, if he needed to put him at, first base like he might have the bat to be able to handle first base there's uh, a lot of contact it's it's a good swing it's a lot of bat speed it's huge power i mean he's a big big dude um he has a really strong arm i don't think there's any question about just the arm strength that he has the arm strength that he has to catch is more about like this is going to be a large large human being is he going to have the mobility Hmm. to which is long term to stay behind the plate and then obviously the 
you know, just the fact that they have Adley Rushman. But yeah, I, I think he's going to move up. Uh, we already have, like I said, 43. I think he's going to move up to top 30, maybe top 25, uh, maybe, well, maybe even higher. I, I don't know. I, but I, I think he'll be, yeah, in the top, top 25, 30, if, if not maybe even higher than that because what he's been doing lately has been pretty ridiculous. Yeah, we've got a, a similar question from Isaac Wald on Instagram. He says, where would you put Jet Williams in a top 100? Currently, he's 90. But I guess in that in that same regard, how much higher would you have him just given his production? Uh, he's He's been another kind of personal cheeseball type. For me, he was recently promoted to double A. It's been a phenomenal year for him. Uh, overall, he's hitting 267, 431. 461, 13 home runs, 22 doubles, 44 bags, and maybe most impressively, 102 walks uh, of all qualified minor leaguers. That puts him fourth. The top five is Justin Henry Malloy, Harry Ford, Jesus Castillo, Jet Williams, Termar Johnson. Um, I love pretty much everything about Jet Williams. I'm curious to see what sort of feedback we get on him as a defender, uh, kind of as we get into prospect handbook season. But I really honestly don't care where he ends up. I think he's dynamic enough. I think he's such a good hitter. I think he's got enough power. I think he'll impact the game in, in so many ways that I would be confident in him in that top 50-ish range. I expect to be one of the highest people in the office on him when we put together our preseason top 100s. Uh, but he's he's just been amazing, I think, all year. He's a little bit older than Basayo. He's about to turn... Um, 20, I believe, here in the next few few days or weeks in his age 19 season now. Um, but I, I'm all in on Jet. Where, where are you at with Jet, Ben? I, I could see that potentially. He's certainly going to move up. I mean, since we did our last update, I think he might have just gotten promoted to high A at that time. And, and since mm. he's gotten to high A, I mean, he has as many – or he has actually – so he has seven home runs in 36 games in high A after hitting six in 79 yeah. in low A. And he, just he's overall. another one where people, I think, I, at least I've seen some people who kind of question the impact. I think he's got legit power. He's strong throughout his, his lower body. He gets a lot of leverage in his swing. The hands are strong. The wrists are strong. He's just like a very put-together player, even if he isn't like super tall i think he has tons of strength in that frame like i think matt said like it kind of reminded him of like dustin pedroia-esque in terms of like the power that he's generating from that shorter frame uh i i'm not really too concerned about the impact we're, we're gonna see with jet I, I think he's gonna hit for power uh i think he yeah i think he's somebody too where the power it might not be the biggest raw power but i think it'll play up just because of the way that he hits the yeah. ball uh, he, or, or just yeah. the way that he's able to he barrels the ball. the ball a lot he has good angles i think he just has an excellent eye it's great contact skills he doesn't expand the zone like he does a lot of things really well that i like offensively yes an, an extremely accurate barrel to go with the the hundred plus walks that he's <laughs> got again good to be uh five foot five foot eight yeah uh, something but, to you know, your love of short hitters ben there's something to it yeah, and short arms uh, helps too. It's a it's a short swing, a very accurate swing. Um, yeah, I, I could see him being a little bit lower than like fifty ish. Yeah, on on the top one hundred, but 
Um, I that maybe I maybe I end up being white. It's, there's a reason we have like a whole off season process to take the time and yeah. go through every single uh, prospect and. <laughs> It's yeah, tough. who like knows? It, Maybe once once I'm actually putting together my list, I'll be like, oh, I really like this player. I like this player. And, and once I get to Jet, maybe it'll be a little further down. But just kind of thinking out loud, I, I think somewhere in the middle of the top 100 seems fair. Yeah, it's one of those things where in season we do monthly updates. And I think each update we do, we get more directionally correct with the order. Each update is more accurate than the previous one where we're able to incorporate new information. But at the same time like it is in all of the movement of the season whereas yeah. when it's you hard have to fully process time... everything and like fully compare and contrast and really dive as deep as you want to so like the iterative rankings help and they're they're certainly better than going just throughout the whole season which is maybe a one mid-season update so hopefully you're, you have a better starting point but there's really a lot of information that you can gather and you can just the comparing and contrasting of players that you're able to do in the off season when you're not kind of trying to um, hit a moving target the target is at least still and you can kind of size up and, and set your sights and aim and that makes it a little bit easier yeah and just have more time to to make calls to yep. look over video data different things that can lead to a more thorough comprehensive uh, process and, and a better list overall yeah harder to do that when you had to put out a podcast every week or maybe every other week in our case but that's what I, I think is the main impediment to me as well. <laughs> uh, I think those are all the questions we had for this week. Um, we'll probably get to a few more next week. But if you guys do have questions um, that you're thinking of now as we've talked uh, on today's episode or just as you have them, you can send them to us uh, on, on socials. You can send them to our email. It's at future, future projection at baseballamerica.com is the email that you can send that to. Um, so send us send us any if you have some, and we'll we're happy to answer them on the podcast. And it's one of the favorite segments that that we do for me. But um, yeah, anything else, Ben? Before we get out of here, uh, no. With uh, it's prospect handbook season already. Working working away at our our organizations, getting some of the lifting started on that. Yep. If that is or, coming, I shouldn't say started because it's kind of a year round process, but yeah, uh, kind of the time where you can sink in and really look over your chapter and make some calls and, and start to think about how you're going to line up, line up guys. Yeah. We also have Jupiter coming up. We're both going to be there. So that'll be fun. Jupiter will be fun. Yeah. Going to have an updated 2025 uh, and expanded rankings coming out for that too. So yeah, we uh, should have updates for a number of different amateur rankings in the next, mm, next month or two. Uh, should be updated 2024's uh, underclass college list to go with your underclass high school list. So, um, yeah, all that, all that's going on. I'm excited to take in some games with you in person, though, Ben. We'll we'll be there before we know it. We will see a lot of games in Jupiter, <laughs> that's for sure. We'll miss a lot more. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you to all the BA subscribers, as always. Uh, you guys really allow us to do what we do. Uh, for Ben, I'm Carlos. We will see you next time, everybody.